Hi, and welcome to What's Next, the podcast where we explore the technology of tomorrow and what it means for us today. I'm Christina Beckhold Russ. I cover the UK and Europe for Samsung Next. Over the next several months, we'll be sharing interviews recorded at this year's Tech Open Air Conference in Berlin, where some of today's leading minds in technology gathered in early July. Each week, we'll highlight the human stories behind tomorrow's most groundbreaking innovations. Up next, you'll hear from Danny Longa, the Vice President of Artificial Intelligence at the video game software development company Unity Technologies. Danny speaks to Samsung Next's Ricardo J. Mendez about his work to advance the capabilities of AI through scalable game simulations. Hi, I'm Ricardo, and thanks all for joining us, Danny. Yeah, thank you. I've really been looking forward to this session. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Very glad to hear that. Let's start at the top. I mean, and we're, I'm quite curious to hear a bit about your story. You have had a long and storied career, very uh, working in different areas. But can you give us like a quick summary of, you know, what your story is and what you're doing right now? So I have always been into democratizing software from the very beginning. I've always been interested in APIs, SDKs, all these things that software developers use. Throughout my career, I have uh, picked machine learning and, and, and AI as one of these areas where I think it would be really beneficial to have a lot more developers getting access to it, being able to exploit. it. Uh, I, I think that it's only when you really let a lot of people put their minds into what you have created, that you're going to see these usages that you could never imagine. Interesting. Uh, we were just uh, talking earlier about what you're working on at Unity, and you're coming at this. Unity is a gaming company for those who are not aware. They're making, they're making a game engine. But uh, you were coming at this more from the traditional AI side of things with Uber. So can you talk a bit about the transition and what you're working on now? Yeah. As you may know, I worked on AI at Microsoft, at Amazon, and at Uber. When you work on AI there, you, you, you work in a very confined space. I mean, like at Amazon, it's about selling more products to the customer, making sure the customer can more easily find something. Yeah. When you get to Uber, it's really about uh, making sure that the pickup experience between the Uber driver and the Uber passenger is, is, is really low friction and painless. Which is also okay, okay, but it's still a very, very, very limited space. Yeah, uh, what what I saw with Unity was that here you have an opportunity to sort of uh, push the boundaries on AI. On a game engine, you can you can go beyond selling products, selling books, or getting people into taxes. You can you can start playing with some of the fundamentals in nature. And that's an interesting perspective. It's not one that people usually think of when referring to game engines or saying that you see it more of a almost like a sandbox for experimentation almost i see it as a biodome for ai yeah so the game engine is a biodome yeah it's a closed environment you have a 3d space it's spatial you have physics and you have all the interactions you can you can imagine yeah moving around it's also crossing a very interesting boundary because yeah you can die in that world, but then you can respawn immediately. Yeah, The brain that you're trying to build, the brain you're trying to train, it can live for a thousand years because it doesn't really die. Yeah, So you can also checkpoint. You can also sort of play with evolution in that world where you basically at one point split the system into two clones and let them evolve differently. If one of them looks very promising, you can keep 
that world and you can close off and shut down the computer on the other one. Yeah. So there's a lot of things where not only are you uh, using the same principles that you have in nature, but you can actually cross over and start explore evolution on steroids in a sense. You don't have to run at, at human time. You can at 30 frames per second or whatever. You can run at a thousand frames per second if you want. Yeah. You only really limited by technology and the scale of it. Let's look a little bit back in your history. You were a founder at some point at the Vocomo, I think, yeah, the, name yeah. of the company. Yeah, yeah. I spent, I spent in two startups. I spent eight years on uh, on speech enabled uh, virtual assistants. That was a really tough period. We uh, envisioned that you would use your phone to interact with an agent. Uh, using your voice only. You think about Siri and Alexa nowadays, but this was uh, with much more immature technology. Uh, the speech recognition engine may be 80% accuracy. And if you think about that, that's one out of five words being misrecognized. It's very, very difficult. Interestingly enough, everything we did is, is how these systems are implemented today. It's not AI, by the way, yeah? They're implemented using solid software engineering methods. Lots of people, lots of creative writers, linguists, a lot of software engineers implement dialogues. You know, the jokes that you hear Siri and Alexa say, they're humanly engineered, yeah? It's all artificial, yet not intelligent at all, yeah? Some of the things we worked on in that period, things that we actually, actually gave up on, was to start adding intelligence to the dialogue, to actually have the system learn what you were looking for, understand your intent. But we were way too early on all accounts. And so you tried to tackle the, the voice problem twice at two different startups. Yeah. Um, what made you change, let's say, from one to another? Were there, were there like inflection points where you said, like, nope, I need to stop this. Let's try a different approach. Yeah, I was in one startup first, and it was a heavily engineered approach. This is actually the one that, say, Siri is, is more or less a, a copy of that today. In my second startup, I went in and wanted to be more ambitious and wanted to do this in a much more dynamic way with a much smarter system. I can tell you after four years, I woke up one morning and I said, okay, it's, uh, it's time to realize failure, learn from it, and move on. And... I've actually not done anything. I've never talked to a computer since. <laughs> I don't use Siri. I don't have an Alexa. I tried them, of course, yeah, and I don't think they're not there at all. They're still the same, very predictable interaction, and they have no clue what I'm talking about, and therefore it's very limited what they can do. So I think it's important to basically accept the possibility of failure, embrace it, and accept it. And to me, it has been a very important stepping stone to move forward. So just realize that even your the best vision is a failure at one point if you can't execute on it. Uh, you learn a lot from that. One of the best things, I think, is that you actually get second and third chances. Yeah? If you don't get stuck on taking as a, the failure as something negative. That's my key message. Failures are actually positive. It's positive learnings, for real. Something positive coming out of failure, I think, is it's great advice. I'm curious, though, how did you decide where the line was? You know, if, if somebody is working on something right now, they're not sure if to continue on. Like, is there a point? Are there clear indicators for you where it says, like, nope, this is where I need to stop? I want to use some examples of uh, you, you brought up the line. I think the line is very, very 
important concept. I think it's, it's, it's also a very important concept in AI to probe for where the line is. In life, I think it's important to try to cross the line a few times to sort of identify where the line is. And then when you are very confident you know where the line is, you also have to accept at that point whether it's worth to keep pursuing this if that line is very consistent where it is. You're probably, at, at, let me take a specific example. In speech recognition, we basically came to the point where the recognizer is just not going to be good enough for the next 10 years for us to accomplish this. We approached it from multiple sides, and the line was very firm. And at that point, we were confident that uh, we were too early. Mm, that's a that's fair assessment. Basically, try to project where where things are likely to go on if there's no major breakthrough, let's say. Yeah. And uh, well, it sounds like you had a bit of a tough breakup with voice and then went into Microsoft. Yeah. Uh, I, I basically said, now the screen is going to be everything. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to be, I, I think it's super important not not to sort of look back too much and not to get stuck. You have to be ready to let go. I basically after eight years of speech recognition, I said, oh, I'm never going to do this again. Now I'm going to do screens and touch instead because that seems to work much better. And a whole new world opens up. Now, any particular lessons learned with that process? Any mistakes that you say, like, this was an obvious one that it could have avoided? I think it's important to recognize that some of the fundamentals that you are engaged in here, some of the fundamental, say, processes and technologies actually carry over. To a great extent. Another uh, experience I've had is uh, to shift into different domains. So if you shift into, say, the domain of creating smart interfaces that are graphical, coming from speech recognition, what was my immediate thought was, well, I want the graphical interfaces to be adaptive, just, just like a dialogue with a very smart system. I couldn't do it with speech recognition. Maybe I can now engage with the user in a graphical way and have a conversation that way or a dialogue that way, which led to uh, uh, small innovations that in hindsight, uh, uh, you know, today we take it for given, but like we had some ideas like, oh, let's put 80% of the application in the cloud, on the, uh, on the network. We didn't have a cloud at that time. Put it in, in, in the network and only the front end on the, on, the, on the phone. Lightweight front end, all the intelligence in the back end. Well, that's like a lot of systems are built nowadays, yeah. Uh, when we did the speech recognition work, it was all cloud. You dialed in on a phone. It was all data center-based, yeah. So you take this with you into a new domain. Everybody in that domain, I can tell you, at Microsoft, everybody was eager trying to compress everything into a phone, a small phone at that time, yeah. Very limited memory, very limited CPU, and nobody imagine that the cloud would be an addition uh, that they could use. Yeah. So when you shift, when you recognize failure at one point and you shift into another area, bring all the experience with you and look at that new area, that new domain with that set of experience with you. And I've done that many times. I mean, like I've been working on self-driving cars. What do I know about self-driving cars? Yeah. I'm currently working on robotics. I've never worked on robotics before, but there are constantly things I bring with me into that new domain that allows me to attack existing somewhat unsolvable problems by basically coming in with a whole new perspective. So, for instance, for robotics, 
What is my perspective? They need to be able to adapt to human interaction. They need to learn to deal with humans uh, just as I wanted the speech-enabled virtual assistant to do. And this is related to a topic I was discussing with someone else, that it looks like experience is something that tends to be Experience and perspective are things that tend to be undervalued in the software industry per se. There's a certain career path that, yeah, you engineer for a while and then you're supposed to move purely into management and then don't deal with the low-level problems. And whereas it seems that you're advocating the fact that, no, you should take advantage of this long-term perspectives that people build up and don't discard this. I, I, I mean, like, I'm going to let you in on a secret here. What makes my day is to get a very smart 25-year-old, maybe even PhD, to look at me and think. I can see things. That, you know, damn it. Why didn't I get that idea? And I'm just cheating a little because I'm using experience to sort of uh, mix things up in ways that these people uh, at that age have not seen yet. That enables me to keep these folks on their toes, which is beneficial to me because then they think faster. They also want to show that they have good thoughts and it overall creates an environment that is more competitive when it comes to ideas. Yeah, I'm not leaning back. I, I want to push them. Well, this all this knowledge that uh, you bring as you go from one company to another, how easy is it to get a company, a new company that's used to one way of doing things to absorb this? The case that you mentioned with Microsoft, for instance, it seems that your your own startup was well way ahead of time with cloud usage and whatnot. And whereas the approach to describe on Microsoft and Mobile was very much that this is supposed to be run on device because that's what we have always done. So how easy is it to get a new company used to the ideas that you have already experimented with that might not fit their current vision? There's two sides to that, to answering that question. Yeah, One side is, yeah, I've never joined a company that's not ready to have that open mind. So it, it needs to be in the culture. Yeah. So if you're cautious and, and don't, don't join companies that tell you exactly what to do and even worse, how to do it. That being said, I find it relatively easy then to convince uh, large parts of a company that there's something they haven't thought about. There isn't a perspective to what they're doing and have been doing for years that sort of they had missed. And I've generally been my experience that if you really uh, understand storytelling, if you really can give good context, let me give an example from Unity, a company that is at its deep, deep in its in its heart. It's a game developer company. Yeah? Everybody at Unity are game developers. They're interested in helping game developers. It's a platform. It's a tool. And then I, I walk in the door and, and uh, long story short, I talk about robots. And it's like, what, what does this have to do? Yeah. If you just really carefully tell the story of how the game engine can actually revolutionize a space that the company founders originally never thought about. Why would they be against that? Why would the company be against that? The company will see that that as yet another place where we can change the world for the better. Hmm, that's, a, that's a great point. And it's something that I think engineers sometimes tend to leave aside. And sometimes on the engineering side of things, we tend to assume that the code is the thing and not necessarily how you present the idea of what the code or the solution can accomplish. 
However, you did mention uh, something really interesting that you wouldn't come into a company that is not necessarily open-minded or ready to accept. Which advice would you give somebody who's evaluating a new company that to be able to detect if this is if the company is truly open to new ideas and not just saying they are? Yeah. I, I think you have to look at uh, at a company's track record. Especially has the company showed a desire in the past to enter into new business areas? Have there been a desire to apply the company's resources in a domain that you did not necessarily predict. Yeah. There are lots of examples of companies out there that just keep doing the same thing they've been doing all the you know, all the time, year after year. They just do the same thing, yeah. And all new ideas are, are not being being welcomed. I don't feel any employee should really take that fight. If that's the culture, that's the culture. I mean I, I don't know exactly how to change that. It's a free world and uh, a lot of opportunities out there. And I, I, I really have consistently gone after companies that really have that spirit to try new things. You know, uh, Uber is definitely one of them. Microsoft was one of them too. Believe it or not, IBM Research is that place too. There's a lot of uh, deep-seated culture there in exploring new things. In the case of Unity, the core principle behind Unity is to to enable creators. If that's what you do then it's very deep in the corporate culture to be open-minded because creators create all kinds of stuff. Yeah, plus, it is, um, looks like it is an ethos where you need to assume that you're providing the tools, but the better ideas for how to use them might come from other people. So that, I imagine, might make them more open-minded in the start. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's what I start out by saying is I'm, I'm, I've always been fascinated about enabling creators, developers, designers to do things that I could not imagine. I, I sometimes look at stuff that people do. I'm like, hmm, I never thought about that. It annoys me a little. Uh, but yet then I look at it and say, well, uh, at least we created the tool that allowed them to do this fantastic thing. I imagine that you've seen a lot of cycles and with every cycle then tend to come no small amount of buzzwords and hype. So if you could wave a magic wand and make a buzzword disappear right now, which one would it be? Uh, that is all in the algorithms. It really annoys me, this extreme focus on algorithms. Because what, what are algorithms? Algorithms are calculations, computations that are carefully thought out by very smart people. And they do something very smart. Yeah, But it's designed, fundamentally designed by a human. Yeah? What I think I have seen is that computers are absolutely magnificent at learning. Learning the way that we learn, going through iterations the way that evolution does that. In that context, it's not about coming up with the solution. It's about uh, feeding the computer system enough data for it to figure it out. After all, uh, these uh, different attempts to create smart systems, at the end is needed. So it's not about heuristics. It's not about algorithms where everything is thought out by a human designer, but it's really about systems that are able to, to interact with the environment, first through simulations and then through a real feedback loop with the physical environment that the computer learns all the things that it needs to learn to be a, a smart partner to us. Ah, interesting. Yeah, there's a saying of, you know, quantity is a quality of its own. Uh, so you think this is mostly an issue of uh, data quantity up to a point? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those people who believe very strong in large amount of, of, of data is bringing us there. I'm not really pursuing any, any approaches that are where 
very smart humans get in the way and look at the data and, and do something clever. Uh, I really want the machines to learn to do the clever stuff because that's sort of the only point where we're really going to be able to leverage the machines. Yeah, and, and looping back to the point you were making originally about running multiple worlds and multiple simulations, well, this would be basically just a gigantic data throw of experiments. Yeah, that that is what fascinates me about the game engine, is that I can create spatial scenarios where I can play out all kinds of very challenging scenarios, and a computer system can... Uh, at scale, try out billions and billions of, of different problems and figure out how to systematically learn from that and solve those problems. And that's really how we are going to solve a lot of the our challenges as, as, as humans. Uh, if you look out, we don't have to look very many years out until we see those <laughs> real uh, dark clouds on the horizon where we need help. I would agree. And you know, given that you bring up the, the topic of looking forward, I mean, things have changed a significant amount, and never mind even the past 10 years, in the past five. If you were to guess, if we are sitting down here 10 years from now, how do you think things have changed? Which key topics do you think we would be discussing then? I think that over the next 10 years, we're going to see some very dramatic developments in the AI space. I do want to caveat everything by saying that, of course, and this includes myself, I've done this many times, we really exaggerate the expectations of short-term improvement, and then we completely miss the real long-term impact. So when I say that, I think that over the next 10 years, we are going to see some real breakthroughs in artificial intelligence that are going to be, uh, let's use the term, mind-blowing uh, to us, and it's going to help us solve some really, really hard problems. I think we are getting there. Uh, I think we're getting there much faster than I ever thought. Uh, if you had asked me five years ago, I wouldn't. It would have been many, many decades out. Now I think it's coming closer. Is it within 10 years? Maybe, but it's going to be close. What I think is even more important there is to sort of say, when you say 10 years, I think it's the journey there that matters the most. We'll meet in 10 years, but on the way to those 10 years, we're going to do so many interesting innovations, so many new things are going to be learned and experienced that is going to benefit all parts of society, whether it's self-driving vehicles, robotics, uh, or video games for that sake. They're just going to be much more fun, much more interactive, much more dynamic. Well, I think it was Bill Gates who basically said that people tend to underestimate, overestimate what they can achieve in a year, but underestimate what they can achieve in 10 AI is a rather broad space, though. Do you think we're going to be close to common sense reasoning in, say, five to ten years, or is this still a ways out? I, th I think we need to understand that we don't quite understand ourselves what, what reasoning means. So you can't really answer that question. What I'm going to say is that you're going to see elements of uh, systems that are going to have, uh, uh, have the ability to, for instance, uh, learn and predict, uh, say, human behavior. So it's going to be able to follow us and be able to to get to know that based on, 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 our, on our past doings, here's what we're likely going to do next. It's going to classify us. It's going to be able to anticipate uh, what different people are going to do. That is not reasoning, but it's a small example. Uh, say that you put that into an autonomous vehicle. 
it's going to identify not the other cars around it and pedestrians as just objects, but it's going to recognize these objects as an older person, a young child, a person out jogging, uh, an aggressive driver to my left, a passive driver uh, to my right, etc. Try to get an understanding of what's going on. It's going to be able to run simulations on that and see, should I stay in my lane for the next three seconds or should I consider doing something else with all these prediction taken into account? Yeah. But I think we're going to see elements of that and, and other things that we humans do. Whether that is going to have a mind of its own, I'm not going to go there because I don't know what that is. But we're going to see a lot of elements that we're going to recognize and say, huh, that's interesting. That's going to make a good car in traffic because it's going to understand what the bicyclist is about to do. Interesting. So something that is up to a point, let's say, almost hyper-specialized domain knowledge, but extensive knowledge in that area where it recognizes that a pedestrian might be wavering about if to jump in front of the car across the street or not, but can recognize the difference between a pie and a bird, for instance. That could very well be the case, yes. But it, it will have, uh, these systems will have elements of, of traits that we humans have. I mentioned in my talk earlier today, curiosity is, is actually a very powerful trait for a computer to have. It makes it much more efficient in finding solutions. Without curiosity, it's just random. Curiosity is a good idea. Nature invented curiosity. It invented a lot of other traits. You're going to see these traits come into systems over time. Now, any... Other advice that you would give to someone who's basically just starting right now, which domains say, would you say like, yep, that's definitely an interesting one that I wish more people were exploring, or this domain is kind of overdone at this point, anything like that? I think it's very important to pursue areas that we consider sort of off limits implicitly. And, and let me give some examples, yeah. Underlining all of that is about thinking big. Yeah, but we are getting technology in place that allows us to actually think big and act in the small. So, for instance, if you look at a, a, I'm very fascinated by agriculture, plants, we kind of need that and we need it at scale. But you can imagine that uh, the farmer has robots, drones, terrestrial robots, and a lot of other technology in place to optimize the growth of each plant in the field. We can use fluorescent phenomena to figure out what is the humidity in the plant. We can use satellites to understand what does the, the soil, the field distribution look like. Uh, so we can basically use the best seeds uh, for the best location on a field, centimeter by centimeter. Yeah? Because we have drones, we have robots, we have good batteries, we have lots of computer vision, we have all these technologies in place that means that we can care for each plant individually. This is an example, yeah, where you need to look around and see those opportunities where something changed and it enables these scenarios that you never thought about. Well, that's sadly all the time we have, unfortunately, because this has been a fascinating talk. Thanks all for joining us, then. Yeah, thank you for having me and thank you for your interest. Thanks. listening to what's next we're currently releasing a new episode every week from this year's tech open air conference in berlin be sure to subscribe rate and review just search for what's next on your app of choice or go to samsungnext.com forward slash podcast 
I'm your host, Christina Beckhold-Russ. This episode of What's Next was produced by Rachel King, Laura Flynn, and Eliza Lambert, with Claire Mullen as sound engineer for Pod People. If you have questions or suggestions, we would love to hear from you. Get in touch on Twitter at Samsung Next, or send us an email, podcast at samsungnext.com. Cheers. Cheers.